Hello everyone, my name is Danny. I'm George. And welcome to 30 for Knowledge, a podcast where every episode one of us starts researching a ridiculously long in-depth topic and then presents it in a way to be as entertaining and informative as possible with zero errors. Isn't that right, George? Absolutely zero errors. <laughs> never an error and never a correction. And I like how you didn't give that a timestamp just so that, you know, we can loosey-goosey this. Mm, but not, not <laughs> I think before we start, we, start, we start recording, loosey-goosey has yes, been yeah. the uh, the code phrase of yeah. the podcast today. I mean, if you look at our upload schedule, it's very loosey-goosey. <laughs> well, this episode is not loosey-goosey. No, no, no. So Full of facts. This is uh, this is History of Surgery Part 2. Part 2, Danny, finally. Part 2, the long-awaited sequel. I am so excited to get this out of my brain. I feel like I've been holding this information in my head for a very long time. I'm going to immediately put you on the spot. Um, oh God. <laughs> yes. I'm going to immediately put you on the spot. Can you yeah. very quickly summarize what we learned in episode, in part one? Oh, I, I've oh, got, got covered. it. Oh, I'm yes. going to cover okay. it. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to go, we'll, I'll rehash what we've already done a little bit. Because all I remember about it is being very grisly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. And that it turns out the logo spinning pole on the top of barbershops yes, is related to blood people letting. being bloodletted, which means I now can't get a haircut without thinking about horrible things. <laughs> well, I've got to say that while the first episode might have been described as grisly, it just gets worse from here. Oh. <laughs> this is way <laughs> a, worse. A nice change of pace. <laughs> so it's saying that, I think, trigger warning from the start that if you can't handle violence against small animals um if you're a bit squeamish perhaps if you're so squeamish that the audio description of these things is bad enough then yeah you really shouldn't be listening to this i, th- I think just just be aware that it might be coming mm-hmm. i mean it is it, it is it's definitely that, i don't know why i put it's on there. it's on page however many of however many pages you've got to so, go through shall i shall i get started because i feel like we do have a lot to get through we've got a lot to get through yeah here we go history of surgery part two part two have at it I've just got to begin by saying I'm not allowed to mention mirrors. You're not allowed to mention mirrors? <laughs> no, I'm not allowed Why to talk about mirrors. Because I was like, I've been ripped a new one by my girlfriend for how excited I got about mirrors in the okay. last episode. Yeah. And also around the episode, I was just fascinated by the mirrors thing. Mm-hmm. And I I, I, said, I spoke to people about mirrors quite a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so there wasn't actually anything wrong with the information given. It was just a case of... Please stop talking about mirrors. <laughs> How important they were to the Renaissance. And we've now spent a minute saying the word mirrors more than at any point in the last three months. Yeah, but I'm not allowed to mention mirrors okay, anymore. We won't talk about mirrors. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> I can't mention mirrors anymore. Okay. Um, so when we last talked about surgery, we covered Hippocrates, mm-hmm. Galen, Hippocratic beliefs, and some of the damaging cures that prevailed in early human history. That's it. All the horrors coming back to me now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all those all those memories you pushed yeah. down. All the down. things I didn't want to know. All the things I've been dreaming about for months. <laughs> uh, we spoke about how the Renaissance paved the way for inward discovery. Oh, yeah, that thing. That thing. And oh, that, that you know, that, that thing. You know, I don't know. It begins with M. And we're going to pick up with Andreas Vesalius, where we left him being chased by wild dogs in the graveyards of Paris while oh, yeah, hunted the guy who was for human stuff. body parts. Yeah, now no, I remember, yeah. And this, uh, what time period was this? So we're looking around about the 15, Hundreds. early 1500s. So I like knew that. Early 16th century. Uh, so in his early 20s, Vesalius flitted between Padua and Bologna between teaching schools. Before Vesalius blew up the academic scene, however, one thing we need to know 
is that in Italy, dissections had been routine at this point for over 200 years. Mm -hmm. So this is like the 1530s. This is dissection of dead people. Yeah, dissection of dead people. uh, For like medical knowledge, finding out more about the human body, learning about anatomy. Uh, As part of their university education, doctors were tasked with being present at and studying dissections. Uh, Dissections were carried out in the winter months and the bodies used were those of recently deceased criminals. That's a really horrible detail. It's like only in the winter months when it's cold and it won't be hot and smelly. Or exactly. Like, only one or two dissections were carried out a year and the audience consisted of a small group of 20 oh. or so. So it's like crowding around this course oh. being like, oh, what does that do? I thought, you, I thought you, you made it sound like it was like a weekly thing or something. So one or two a year. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's not... Okay, so like... Well, it, got, it gets more popular, though. Oh, okay. Uh, so the way it worked was a professor read a book or read from a textbook, which was, like, based on, like, Galen or Hippocrates, mm-hmm. uh, while sat on a high chair, and then his assistant, his assistant surgeon, or his assistant physician, normally a practising surgeon, uh, would carry out the dissection on the behalf of the lecturer. Right. Uh, this was all in order to better understand the human body as a teaching aid, but nothing's really changing. Yeah. They're still cutting up the body. They're not particularly learning anything else. They're just continuing say, the practice that Galen already taught. Yeah, they're using the info from people who weren't entirely informed themselves, right? Where they didn't yeah. really know. Like they had, they had theories, but none of this was actually correct, right? And yeah, so the old ancient greats aren't being contested. Yeah. Everything's just being carried That's on. Him. They're sticking to the status quo. Yeah, and with Asalius and his immediate predecessors, everything changes. Mm -hmm. Again, the high interest in anatomy comes back to the growing individualism of the populace during the Renaissance, and therefore academic studies were hyped on human biology too. And the result by Vesalius' time was a crisis in the supply of bodies. A crisis in the supply of bodies. So it's increasingly popular. And, and yeah. there's not not enough body, bodies to go around. For all, to go the, around. all the hobbyists going around just trying to <laughs> trying their own hand at dissection. I must know more about myself <laughs> by cutting up this person. It's a bit like modern people starting podcasts, right? Everyone's doing sure. it. Sure, <laughs> it's the fad right now. So in Hansel is so hard right now. So Vesalius is lecturing in Padua and Bologna and using these bodies for dissections in front of his students to teach them the ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, he's writing De Humani Corporis Fabrica. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Uh, meanwhile, dissections became increasingly popular as an entertainment form, not just as a teaching aid. Oh, I was about to ask. I was about to say, like, why was why the sudden, or not the sudden, but why the increase in it? If, like, it's not like suddenly everyone's becoming a doctor. It's just, oh, that looks fun. And, yeah. Okay, grizzle. I mean, like, obviously, there's no TV at this point, mm. And so, like, people want to learn about the human body as well. So they're packing in to be like oh what are the what are the surgeons doing today i guess between the Colosseum and you know and <laughs> hbo yeah i guess in between you've got dissection yeah and i guess you know it's uh it seems a bit more civil than the yeah. romans of the Colosseum. Uh, marginally like more so marginal but this increase in like popularity didn't help the body problem no later on by the early 17th century uh so that's like the 1600s onwards special anatomical theaters were being built in italy and holland uh, for the public performance of dissections. So that's just purely just, hey, look at this, look at the insides of this body. Yeah. And that's it. No, nothing educational, nothing to be learned. Just look at how big his lungs were. And that's it. Well, I mean, like Vesalius, at that point, Vesalius's book had been published. So there was like a, a better understanding okay. moving away from Galen. But we'll talk about what Vesalius discovered and how he did it. Um, 
So yeah, Vesalius is flitting between the teaching schools of Padua and Bologna. He's lecturing, teaching, teaching students through dissections. Best teacher ever. Best teacher ever. Remember how Vesalius liked skeletons? I sure do. And how he got that one down out of the cage and yeah. like, squirreled it home. <laughs> um, I remember he made that exact sound. <laughs> Historical record. <laughs> uh, skeletons feature very heavily in his book, the, the De Fabrica, which he'll publish in our timeline events soon. Uh, and Vesalius would tie together skeletons to be used as teaching aids. Now, the skeleton isn't a new thing at this point to humans. Like, mm-hmm. it's been around and, well, obviously, but like, as in, in our understanding, it's been around at this point. Um, but in De Fabrica, Vesalius tells us that his physician or anatomist predecessors had put bodies in coffins, covered them in quicklime, and then after a few days, cut holes in the sides of the coffin and then lowered them into a stream. Okay. To what end? So the body's covered in quicklime for a few days, mm-hmm. holes tied into the side, and they're popped into a stream mm-hmm. or like running water. And after a while, the coffin is removed from the running water and opened. And only... The flesh had washed away. Oh, that's gross. Leaving the bones still tied together by ligaments. Oh. And that's how they got skeletons to study. That's really horrible. Do you want to know how Vesalius prepared his skeletons? Oh, in his kitchen, he boiled up a large vat of water. By the way, starting with in his kitchen, so no, it's never a good, it's not a good starting point, is it? Let's go back to my question from episode one. At what point is it like pioneering the sciences? And at what point are they just a bit ghoulish? I think it depends on how big his smile was every While he time was doing he did it. this. If he was doing it with a massive smile on his face the whole time, you know, it's not on the level. So he carved up a body, removing as much flesh as possible and carefully putting aside the loose bits of cartilage, including the cartilage in the tip of the nose and the eyelids. <laughs> okay. Put that to one oh, side. Okay, yeah. Save that for later, that yeah. heart attack. I'm so glad we had a trigger warning up front. He then boiled up the body until it fell apart. He poured off the fat and strained the liquid so that nothing was lost. The little bits of cartilage, which could not be reattached to the skeleton like the tip of the nose, the ears, were strung together on a necklace to decorate the teaching aid. And what he was left with were beautiful, clean bones. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but how is that any better than what they were doing with the river thing? Because at least with the river thing, at least from my understanding of it, is that once they pulled them out of the river, they were still attached and and assembled, right? Yeah. Still the whole skeleton. Whereas what he's done is he pulls them all apart and reassembles them himself? Or is he just making a prettier skeleton by boiling it or whatever he was doing? In which I, case, I will say, this guy's fully just doing it because he's been a kid. <laughs> and that's it. This man was helping no one but himself. Because he's, yeah, he's a bit, yeah, just, just <laughs> giggling to himself in his kitchen. I mean, I don't understand. I don't, I, I, that's a very good question. I don't understand why one was better I, mm. I, or, or not. I feel maybe perhaps... Well, I don't know. He the, managed to he he rewired the skeleton yeah. back together because how big was his pot he was using? I, feel, I get fully it understand if it was a case of when they when the traditional way when they pulled out the skeletons, you know, because it's not a perfect process if you're trying to if you're just running a river through a coffin. Yeah, maybe it wasn't perfect. Maybe that's all still bits on he's it. He's in more control of the process. Maybe? He's more in control of it, and and your note specifically said had more like beautiful, pristine kind of skeleton. Yeah. So maybe a more pure sample to be able to study, which I would, again, I'll totally understand. I just want to make sure it wasn't just because he enjoyed cutting people up in his kitchen. That's all. 
Why does it have to be his kitchen? Why can it be it at the school? Anyone. The school's <laughs> kitchen. Somewhere with a tap. Somewhere with a bigger pot. You know, it doesn't have to be his kitchen. Whether it's his kitchen in school, whether it's his kitchen at home, I'm not sure. Mm. But anyway, he starts getting a lot of groupy students because he's like very popular because, you know, he's he's... Uh, he's a like prodigy, a, like a rock and roll star of, of medicine, <laughs> yeah, basically. Pretty much. Um, and like his students, like his number one fans. Again, best teacher ever, preparing your own bones. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't do that off my own dime. Um, I'd get that from the school budget myself. <laughs> but you know, it's pretty badass making your own skeleton, isn't it? Uh, to help with the body problem, his students had keys made so that they could get easy access to bones and bodies in cemeteries. And so they could scurry them back to the University of the Study, like little gremlins, little body-snatching gremlins. Do not like. One of the bodies that Vesalius dissected was that of a recently buried prostitute famous for her beauty. Her body was stolen from the crematorium. Again, I'm sure this was all above board. I'm sure he didn't pick the most pretty prostitute out of random choice. His students stole the unburied body of a woman who had recently died, and they quickly flayed it so that no one knew it was her and like none of the public would recognise her. Because remember, they're performing like, these dissections publicly mm-hmm. and it'd be like, oh, that's Sandra. <laughs> isn't, she meant to be in the, isn't she meant to be under the ground right now? Um, so like, yeah, people would just be able to recognise who it was. Oh, hey, it's Lucrezia. <laughs> um, but her relatives, this woman, went straight to the judge to protest the, like, the theft of her corpse. Yeah, understandably like, so. Vesalius knew all of this was criminal. Yeah. Um, he even put the equivalent of jokes about it in his book um, through different illustrations, one of which shows like a character called Pootie robbing a grave. And this was like in his like master work, mm-hmm. De Fabrica. Um, and speaking of those illustrations, these olden day books, they had, remember how they had like letters with illustrations on the first page or whatever, and it was like beautifully decorated. Yeah. Like they had, the, like the capital letter would have like a background and like, be border, like, yeah. be a bit larger. Um, in De Humani Corporis Fabrica, large initial Q shows a boar being vivisected. Okay. So cut open alive. And a small initial Q shows a dog being vivisected. So little hints about how like he acquired his knowledge. I see. Full knowledge of what's happening. He knows what he's doing. This guy's gross. Uh, and Vesalius thought it was best to accompany the the dissection of a human corpse with the vivisection of an animal to show the parts of the body in live operation, in like live action. Okay. Ideally, this is what Vesalius thought, ideally one should use a pregnant dog so that one could show the unborn puppy struggling to breathe as soon as the placental blood was supply was cut off. What the hell is wrong with this guy? Grim, isn't it? That has absolutely no justification whatsoever. It's pretty grim. It's like, hey... I know. Let's uh, let's cut up a dead body. Actually, no way. Let's cut up a dead body and cut up an alive dog at the same time. Hey, wait, that's not enough. Hey, what if we see those lungs moving? Yeah. Oh, this guy's lungs used to move. Wait a minute. The, wait, that, this isn't horrific enough. Find a pregnant dog. Like, what kind of staffer did he have to get? What happened when the staffer came in or intern came in and said, "Hey, I got that live dog you wanted. Is it pregnant? No. I'll oh, go get a pregnant one. <laughs> Make it again. I'll, I'll I'll kill this one anyways, just for the sake of it. But yeah, let, find me a pre- find me a heavily pregnant dog first. Oh, and as soon as he... <laughs> it's not great, is it? It's horrific. As soon as he had seen Fabrica through the press, he stopped 
Now I'm just like, every time I say Fabrica, I just think of like some sort of spice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the cupboard. As soon as he had seen smoked Fabrica through the press, he stopped lecturing and became a doctor to the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, in the fact, Holy Charles V. Okay. And even destroyed a few of his unpublished works. And he was done with the whole thing. I think some people would call that burning evidence. Not right. really sure why. <laughs> almost like it's pretty horrific, Danny. Almost, almost. Like he, almost like he shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. Um... In 1564, 21 years after the Fabric of the Human Body was published, Smoked Fabrica, Mm -hmm. he was returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, to Padua, uh, when a storm wrecked his ship near the island of Zanti. Good. The island. Good. Um, (laughs) I'm glad he got shipwrecked. Deserves it. While caught in the storms, they had been at sea for 40 days. Uh, many of the passengers began dying of either starvation or dehydration. Oh, Christ, okay. As they didn't know, they didn't be, they didn't know they'd be at sea that long, so they didn't pack enough yeah. provisions. Um, so the storm kept them out at sea. And the dead were cast into the sea, which horrified Vesalius, uh, which is interesting, I- ironic. Um, he felt, he was like, he felt ill with anxiety and fear and asked that if he should die, he might not, like the others, become food for the fish. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be eaten by the fish. After everything he had done to other people's bodies, here he, he is being terrified of being eaten by fish. I honestly thought you were going to say he was horrified at the idea of the bodies being thrown over because he was going to be like, wait, I could use that or something. Oh, wait, along those what a waste. <laughs> Come back. Uh, what freaked him out the most actually was the thought that if fish eat you, then someone eats the fish. Um... Then technically the person is eating you. Whereas... Okay. But worms are okay in worms the ground okay, yeah. because humans don't eat really worms, eat worms. Yeah. yeah. So okay. That, I, the I, weird hint of cannibalism freaked him out. See, this is how you can tell this guy is unhinged. Because <laughs> because if that's the thing that's worrying him the most, and he's like, one second, I'm just busy robbing and desecrating bodies, but I don't want to eat a fish that has eaten a bit of human or yeah. whatever. Well, the writer of Bad Science, David Wooton, says, um, Vesalius, terrified of being eaten by fishes, would surely have been equally dismayed at the thought of being chopped up, boiled and turned into a skeleton. To have one's body stolen by medical students was every bit as awful as being eaten by wild beasts. Concealed behind Vesalius's bravado is a genuine alarm at what he had done in his career. Get wrecked, son. Oh, and his, and his pilgrimage that I mentioned. It's rumoured he had to flee Spain in the first place, as the emperor was also the king of Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to flee to Jerusalem because he was dissecting the body of a young girl that turned out to still be alive. Her heart was still beating. Um, but it could also have been because he couldn't leave his job because it's royal service. So he had to get out of it by asking permission mm-hmm. to go to Jerusalem. But who knows? <laughs> I mean, like, if you keep dissecting enough, like I feel like the chances are... yeah. Yeah, Keep probably, doing one thing for long enough. Yeah, you'll probably dissect the wrong person eventually and be like, I need to get out of here quick. But that's the rumour mill. That's the rumour mill. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't deal, deal with rumour. We don't deal in pure fact. But interesting nonetheless. And wild speculation. Um, and he died on the island of Zanti shortly afterwards and was given a decent burial. What, like half buried in the sand or some <laughs> vultures or something? I know, he got, he got, he got, uh, he got a better burial than some of the, the bodies. <laughs> the people he desecrated. All yeah. of the bodies he desecrated. Um... So that was that's the end of uh, Vesalius's tale in this. Oh, that's a shame. I was, I was hoping you were going to say like, and then in 1950, some whack 
medical student decide to bury uh, dig him up dig him up and, and then him up. and then desecrate his body how interesting that he was the what he would be terrified of the thought of being going his body going through what all his vi- not I, I, think, I don't want to say victims yeah are they i don't know but yeah i i think it's like at first i was like oh that's weird and then i thought about it like when you think of any kind of um very mentally unhinged person yeah. when they carry, I, I'm trying to think of a good example and I really can't but you know like whenever you f- there's a story about some Republican politician who's like massive he's, he's like he's, he's against gay marriage and he's against yeah. abortion and then you find out he's got like a million subscriptions to every gay porn website yeah. in the world and you're like well obviously like that's the kind of energy mm. that, that this guy has yeah. in terms of like I'm going to cut up all the bodies but don't let me be eaten by by, by, fish, by fish after I'm long dead. Please don't let me like be mutilated yeah. in in death. It, it it's a it's a very it, it feels like a very universal kind of um, personality uh, blemish in that sense. I don't even know what to call that because it's such a common thing as well, mm. isn't it? I'm sure there must be some sort of like psychological name or some sort of phrase for it. Being a massive that's hypocrite. He's taking Hippocrates to the next level. That's what he is. Well, I mean, his contribution to the world of medicine and surgery is, you know, we remember from the first episode, he, he he's, he's like, they're beginning to prove people like Galen wrong. Mm. Um, so the next big name we need to talk about in, in this wild history of surgery is William Harvey. William Harvey. Funny enough, we go from one rough sea journey mm-hmm. to another. Okay, there's a link. In the year 1600 BCE, nearly the start of the 17th century, a young William Harvey, abandoned in medical school in Cambridge, sensing greater prospects in Italy, uh, specifically Padua, Vesalius's old hall, oh. and headed to Dover to cross the English Channel. Naturally. He had already earned his bachelor's degree several years earlier at Cambridge's Gunville and uh, Caius College. It's not Caius, Keyes College. Um, <laughs> but at the port of Calais, Harvey was singled out amongst his companions and was told he had to be kept prisoner by the governor. Dear Lord. Yeah, so he got to the he got to the port and the governor said, You, you can't get on this shit. You you go to jail. Yeah, you go document. And why why? And um the writer of the invention of uh, surgery, David Wooton, not David Wooton, sorry, David Schneider. Uh Schneider writes, the young Canterbrian was furious, but was forced to watch as his friends sailed away on a packet boat into the evening during the voyage. The boat was caught up in a sudden storm, capsizing and leading to the death of all those on board. Get wrecked. News reached over of the cataclysm, and as the only passenger not allowed on board, Harvey sought out the governor who detained him. Why had Harvey been the sole isolate, alone on the English shore while his friends drowned? The governor explained to Harvey, Two nights previously, I saw a perfect vision in a dream of Dr. Harvey, who came to pass over to Calais, and I was given a warning to stop you. Although Harvey was completely unknown to the governor, their premonition saved his life, and Harvey often told this story as an evidence of a special providence and mission for his life. How strange. That's very strange indeed. Yeah, so singled out by this governor, never met before, and was just like, you can't get on this boat because I've had a vision of you. Your name's Harvey? Get off the boat. That's weird though, isn't it? That's very weird. I don't believe it, but it's very weird. Well, you would walk through life from that point and just be like, 
I am the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd probably give you an ego at that point. Yeah, hundred percent. You'd be like, I'm, I, I've got the divine touch right now. Hundred percent. I can't be hit. I mean, that is like the biggest ego boost. Like someone had a vision of you. Mm. Yeah, someone important had a vision of you, saved your life, and then it all came true. Wow, it's like his trinity. Mm. Nice. From the Matrix, not no. God. Oh, okay, right, okay. <laughs> not from the Bible. <laughs> Eventually, though, Harvey settled into life at the Padua School, uh, absorbing Latin easily and becoming elected counsellor of the English nation, which is basically a group of expat students in Italy who attended the school. So there was also like a German nation in the okay. university and a French nation in the university. But he was like the elected counsellor of the English nation. Okay. Um, as the counsellor of the English nation, Harvey was positioned in the front row of anatomy demonstrations, so dissections, uh, which were always held in the colder months, as you mentioned before, so that rotting corpses were less stinky. Nice. Um, he graduated from medical school in Padua in 1602, and after a brief return to Kent, moved to London. He promptly married a well-placed woman who was the daughter of the physician to King James. I just like the description, a well-placed woman. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it called that before. <laughs> like, in society, you are well-placed in Well-placed in society, okay. Not, we like, will be a fitting match. She wasn't sitting somewhere perfectly. It's like, oh, she's well-placed. She's well-placed, yeah. Okay. She knows how to she, sit down. She, yeah, she, yeah, Okay. <laughs> Look how, look how tight her legs are. I'm not going to make any further comment because <laughs> I knew it would start to go down that road. He would live the next 55 years here in London and climb the ranks of society, despite being a lowly country boy. Apparently, he stylishly brandished a 16-inch silver-tipped whalebone wand that he used as a pointer during pre- presentations. He used a wand? He used, like, a pointing wand, mm. yeah. Do you know how in, like, modern-day presentations, you've got the red, red like, laser pointer? Oh, he yeah. had like a whalebone wand that he'd used to point. So, I actually saw a YouTube video and I saw the, uh, the wand. It was very impressive. Yeah? Yeah, I liked it. It was cool. Uh, okay. Wouldn't it's... be a miss in like the Harry Potter verse. Right. It's cool. <laughs> he was a fancy boy. He was a f- yeah, well, clearly, yeah. He has his elegant attire of black coat, full doublet, ribbed stocking of black silt and long-heeled boots fringed at the top set Harvey apart from less important Londoners. If your life was saved by a miracle you would definitely spend the rest of it looking as dapper as possible well it sounds like a little bit like imposter syndrome to massively me. that too yes well he, he's like a lowly country boy. It's like <laughs> just dress the part he, he, he's overcompensating massively 100%. and he's and you know at, at every single dinner party and drinks occasion he's definitely like you know i almost died once i just said that like every that occasion. was his he, he i he told that story at yeah. every single social gathering did i ever tell you about that time i didn't get on the boat everyone's like yes do you ever, did i ever tell you that time i did land a marathon <laughs> <laughs> 16-inch whalebone <laughs> wand, don't you know? Um, Harvey, though, and his wife, you know, the one that was well-placed. The well-placed woman, yeah. Um, <laughs> were childless, <laughs> which left him... <laughs> we need to learn to segue better. <laughs> Anyways, they were childless. <laughs> they were childless, okay. leaving him tons of time to perform investigations. Gotcha. So he had loads of time to do experiments. Mm-hmm. By his mid thirties, with his wand, with his wand, Wingardium Leviosa. By his mid thirties, he'd settled into a routine of daily medical practice, oh, uh, working for the College of uh, Physicians and dissecting criminal bodies to teach anatomy, and then his own evening home-based research. Absolute kino. So he would have been great at working from home in this day and age. Oh yeah, he'd smash it, honey. I'm just bringing in another corpse. Ugh, all right. Completely self-motivated and endlessly curious, Harvey dissected almost nightly. See, that, that's, I, that is like some insane progression right there from one or two a year for mm. the whole 
city or whatever to this one guy doing it every night. Well, it wasn't just human corpses. Oh, okay. Uh, he even completed a programme of the comparative anatomy of the anus of various species of birds. <sighs> okay. The, 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 the longer comparative that, anatomy. The longer that sentence went on. Of the on, anus the of more various ups- species of birds. The longer the sentence went on, the more upset I got. <laughs> Because it's like comparative analysis, like this is going to be grim of birds and I was or, or of anuses, and I was like, I didn't need to know this. And then, but only of birds. So he just looked, he just studied every single bird's asshole, and was like, honey, I don't think I need a hobby. Well, I don't know if he got to every single species, but various species implies several, several. So at least a pigeon, at least a pigeon, at least a pigeon. Well. maybe a robin. Raven. Uh, raven. Crows. Seagulls? Would seagulls have been around by then? He had some tropical birds too. Tropical birds. Which one do you think had, had the a biggest asshole? <laughs> you brought us up. You brought us up. I, I don't care. I, I, I don't Surely care. Surely it's about the size of the bird. So crows and ravens are quite big, aren't they? I thought seagulls would have it. Oh my goodness, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. What's that? What's the, is it the albatross that's got like the massive wingspan? Yeah. <laughs> you so know what they say. You know, you, know, you know what they say? You've got big wings. <laughs> Big hands, big gloves, <laughs> big wings, big butt. Gross. In, there's a, what, that's, what's that funny fact though about how like, don't like, doesn't bird poo have like pee and semen in it or something? Do they like, <laughs> I pee? didn't expect don't, a second don't word. they, don't they like pee and poo at the same time? I think they They've do. They've got one hole. Yeah, I think, I think they just have a universal hole. Oh god. So. It's just an, it's all purpose, sorry. All, all purpose. purpose. That's the word I was looking for. I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that is ideal. <laughs> it's convenient. I, I don't know if that's convenient or a damn shame. <laughs> I think it's convenient, but it's probably not very hygienic. So make of that what you will. Man. Anyway, the reason why Harvey is cutting famous. Out all of that. <laughs> cutting out all of He's that. not famous for his anus bird studies. Um, bird anus studies. The reason why Harvey is famous is because he was the first person to discover that our blood circulates in a closed system. Ah. So this blew Galen's previous views and teaching out of the water. So mm-hmm. Galen believed there were two systems that mingled together in the heart. A system for the lungs and a system for the heart. So separate. Okay. And they're kind of like joined up. They're like a connecting yeah. part. And Galen noticed that blood was reinvigorated after a trip to the lungs, but couldn't explain why. And, and while Harvey worked out how the blood flowed, he could he still couldn't explain why either, because it's still a long time away from discovering oxygen in the blood. And I was going to say, how did they determine what reinvigorate? Like, what's reinvigorated? Well, they just know blood? that the blood is more red when it comes back uh, from the trip. They okay. just don't understand why. Gotcha. Remember, they used to think that there was like that kind of divine breath that in, yeah. in the air that like gave the blood its spirit. Right. They didn't understand that it was oxygen. So he he narrowed it down to the lungs, basically. It's like... Well, he discovered that everything was part of a closed system, which is important because when you're just trying to like, maybe like treat poisons or something, it's all, it's all in you. It's all, it's You're you're, you're not thinking, oh, the heart's fine or whatever. Exactly. It's It's not in, it's not in isolation. Yeah. Yeah, So what he discovered was revolutionary nonetheless, without like knowing about oxygen um, and, and the least of all, because it proved the ancient ones were wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make these discoveries, Harvey conducted several experiments and investigations. He had witnessed the blood flow within fish and small animals, but eventually he got his hands on the corpse of a recently hanged criminal. Mm-hmm. Harvey placed the body on his dissection table and with candlelight sliced open the chest and cracked open the ribs. Grim. 
By closing the chambers and pumping water into the different sides of the lungs, Harvey realised that the liquids couldn't pass through the walls or the valves of the heart. That is to say, he discovered that liquids couldn't pass through valves in the heart where they're not designed to go. In an instant, he knew that his research had been correct in asserting that the heart pumped blood to the lungs and that the blood returned to the heart. Harvey then turned to some of his fish. (laughs) He sliced open the chest cavity of a fish... Uh, had a look at the way the blood was flowing, because you know how like fish are like sometimes a bit like translucent, depending yeah. on the type of fish. Sure. Um, hold it up to the candle, you know, yeah. to see what's happening. Uh, started poking his finger and it's still beating heart to feel like the contraction of the yeah. heart, like you can feel it. Uh, this reaffirmed his theory that the heart is a muscle. Over the course of many years, Harvey conducted countless experiments on animals, often turning to dogs. Oh, I bet he did do many experiments on many animals. Schneider writes, It is a daunting and troubling, it is daunting and troubling, sorry, to review Harvey's vivisection experiments, no matter how important were the discoveries. Hundreds of animals died in these experiments. So this author is, he's, he's not playing coy here with how he feels about this. He's not, he's, he's not. very much, he's very much on the side of this is wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. I agree. I would have probably made the same assessment by the point of the bird anus studies. Well, I think that, I think, I think we won't, once we have finished, it's good to be interesting to talk about, again, where do we land on like... Yeah. Oh, I know where I'm landing <laughs> in, the, in the 17th century, though, bear baiting and cockfighting and public animal cruelty were commonplace. That's a good point. Um, and it wasn't until 1835 in the, 7th, in the 19th century... Uh, that England would have the English Cruelty to Animals Act passed. That sounds relatively early. Recent. Oh. <laughs> 19th century. No, but considering that, like, slavery was still a thing, like, the previous century. Oh, true, yeah. Like, I, I thought, like, animal cruelty stuff wouldn't have come into until the 20th century, frankly. Just, right. co- just because I, I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic. So, yeah. so, so to know that some people were, like, freely enslaved people... And then a couple of decades later, they're like, what about animals too? Yeah. It's, you know, that's what I thought it... Let's be nicer to them. Yeah, I thought, that's why I thought it felt early, just relative to everything else going on. But still, there were people at the time who saw it and understood that Mm. it was barbaric and cruel. Um, Harvey published his magnum opus, De Mortu Cordis, or On the Motion of the Heart, in 1628. Side note, I love how they still use Latin for all of this. I I wish we could still incorporate that somehow. I I imagine a lot of it's like, you know, he studied Vesalius. He's Mm. like a a few years away from Vesalius, and it's like, he's he's read De Humani Corporis Fabrica. So Mm -hmm. obviously he's trying to be in that same vein of great thinkers, you know. So yeah, he, he published his book in 1628, after nine years of convincing his colleagues at the College of Physicians about the motion of the heart. Uh, it's one of the most important books ever published in the scientific de- domain, according to Schneider. And as with all new ideas submitted to academia, this new theory of knowledge was put to the test, questioned and debated. How his contemporaries felt about vivisection greatly influenced how they perceived his new theories on the motion of the blood in the body. Harvey's critics all argued that vivisection could tell one nothing about what happened in a healthy animal and that it was unacceptably cruel. Uh, Meanwhile, his supporters all copied his experiments and were convinced by them. Like, he's right. We're seeing it. I thought you were just going to say, the people who are against it talk about how you'd learn nothing and it's cruel and you shouldn't do it. And his supporters 
were like, let's just keep doing it. Those forces were, we'll try it. Oh yeah, he's yeah. right. And I, I think their argument, the the people who who believe that like vivisection was wrong, their argument would would have been something along the lines of, you know, it's an it, it, it's it's a barbaric situation. What can it tell us about the the, the normal? nature of nature yeah. if if you know nature at it's like free and at its best you know what can we learn from this other than like you know this could not this might not be this is not a normal set of circumstances that humans and animals yeah. exist within this is this is cruelty and what we're learning from it like you know might not be right you know yeah. it takes away from its like credence um and in 1649 harvey wrote a response to some of his critics of his theory and simply told them to perform vivisections themselves to prove that he was right. If they needed ocular evidence of the circulation of the blood, for some of them, he even offered to do it in front of them. Wow. If you don't believe me... I'll show you. Give me a dog, I'll show you. <laughs> and just to re- reiterate how horrible like these were, these experiments, in the 1970s, yeah. the Royal Society, which is the UK's National Academy of Sciences, uh, made a film for schools that reproduced... Harvey's for the sections, which I presume are the dog ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wuton in Bad Medicine, Bad Medicine writes that he met, the author Wuton himself met two people who were shown the film yeah. um, at the Royal Society at, at school and both told him that they could not bear to watch it all and that some of the co-students like fainted. I, I'm shocked they were able to do it in the first place. I'm presuming this is a medical teaching school yeah. and not just like a random O-level no, biologist. No, no, no. <laughs> some Saturday catch-up class but but I, I tried to look these up yeah because I thought there must be some sort of controversy about it because yeah. it's like the 1970s but I couldn't find anything I know that, I mean that, that's a thing it's like I know the 1970s was still quite loose with a lot of stuff um, but I thought that it would have come under the whole Animal Cruelty Act or whatever but I guess if it's for scientific or medical purposes they can get away with it I don't know. I I don't know. I I I did like look for the video. Mm. It's not to watch them, but I was like, there must be some sort of like, there must be something about yeah, this. Yeah. But I didn't find anything apart from like YouTube videos about how great Harvey is. Um, again, <laughs> your your YouTube algorithm is so screwed. <laughs> You're gonna get recommended. Dog vivisection. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like well, people are watching me now. Um, if they weren't before. An interesting note on the word autopsy, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, auto means self. Okay. An opsy or optus means seen. So self sight meaning go see it for yourself. Really? Yeah. So self seen, self sight. Okay. Go see it for yourself. So the, so the evidence of your own eyes. Okay. So for you, but so, so the autopsy doesn't refer to the person who's dead. It's referring to the person who's what who's doing it. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, it's more like an action rather than an hour. Yeah. Okay. That's um, interesting. But the autopsy lost its original meaning through these medical discussions, uh, um, such as the one surrounding De Mortu Cordis, eventually becoming synonymous with the, uh, dissection, as opposed to, like, evidence you gather with your eyes. That's a good point, yeah. Because, yeah, at what point do you, do you go from, this is a dissection of just just random yee around someone's dead body to actually figuring out why did this person die? Yeah. Kind of thing. Okay. Um, and as Harvey's arguments became generally accepted in the medical community... Um, experiments on living animals became the norm in biological research. Ooh. Note that I didn't say medical research then, oh, okay. but biological research. And, and that's an important distinction, especially for Wouton in, in his book. 
speaking of, let, let's let's get into some of these uh, animal experiments. Um, so just <laughs> just, a few, just to name drop a few names here. Okay. Robert Boyle's vacuum pump experiments in 1659 showed that animals such as birds, shrews, snakes, and kittens could not survive in a vacuum. Uh, oh, I like how you had to specify kittens right mm. to the end. Just to, <laughs> just to really hammer home just how horrific all of this is. Because shrews and snakes... Sod them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've got no time for... Sh- I saw lots of great snakes in London Zoo yesterday. Yeah? But I feel like... I feel like... Did you have to do that experiment to know they couldn't survive in a vacuum? But then, like... Oh, if you don't know about oxygen, you don't know, like, we're breathing in what we need to well, survive. You, there ox- must be a point where you don't know. You must have known about oxygen to be like, I will now get rid of all the oxygen in this... Do it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I died. I guess he couldn't record that, could he? No. No. Um, yeah, I understand doing it to shrews and snakes being like shrews, going from sand, shrew, kitten. Bird, shrew, snakes, kittens. Yeah, all of them I'm fine with except kitten. Why kitten? It's like, I, I'm surprised it, if it said kitten, why not baby snake, baby shrew, and a little duck egg or whatever? <laughs> Like a little, a little ducklet, duckling. Sorry, ducklet. A little duckling. That would be the most like anticlimactic experiment ever. Just put an egg in a vacuum. And just <laughs> yeah. watch it. It did nothing. <laughs> it did nothing. I'm gonna. Like, what did you learn from that? <laughs> nothing. Anyway, so like, yeah, found out that animals can't survive in a vacuum. Genius. <laughs> anyway, okay. I mean, like, yeah. Oh, it's so like, oh, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. But. Even, 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 you know, even the concept of a vacuum is you know, like you know, you know it sounded like you it sounded like you were about to say it's horrible, but we learned nothing. <laughs> but we did, but they did because it's easy for us with hindsight. Yeah, like, of course, there's oxygen. I know, I know, but it's still it, it's so close to nothing. It's oh so close to yeah, oh I don't know. Christopher Wren, do you recognise that name? No, should I? Should I know whatever horrifying person this is? <laughs> He's the architect, architect who designed St. Paul's. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. and and the old Royal Navy College in Greenwich and and more buildings as well. Really famous because like he um, designed St. Paul's, yeah. like, like rebuilt St. Paul's after the fire of London, Great ah. Fire of London. Um, he experimented with transfusing various liquids into animals. Okay, I don't um, like him anymore. Beginning with poisons and ending up with blood. This is where blood transfusions come ah, from. Ah, okay. Um, in 1657, the French ambassador at the time offered Wren an inferior domestic of his that deserved to be hanged for blood transfusion. This but, guy's rubbish, and now he's so bad at his job he deserves to be hanged. When we say inferior domestic, this is a person. Yes. Okay, right. An inferior domestic servant that deserved to be hanged. Do you want to do a blood transfusion on him? Uh, okay, I don't like this person. Luckily, it didn't happen. Okay. Because, oh, 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 we just got hanged then. Because the servant fainted when he saw the experiment that was going to be, the, like, the equipment that was going to be used on him. Yeah, he, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's useless. Just hang him instead. In 1664, Robert Hooke performed an old Galen experiment, um, pumping up the lungs of a vivisected dog. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. <sighs> okay. okay. Right, Okay. Uh, where Galen and even Harvey did this as well. He'd done the experiment before himself, like reproduced the Galen experiment to like see it for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, where Galen had blocked the windpipe when the lungs were inflated, Hook attached a pair of bellows to the opened windpipe of the dog and showed that he could keep the dog alive as long as he pumped air into the lungs. Even if he removed the rib cage. Oh, even if he removed the rib cage. This proved that the rib cage doesn't play a role in sustaining life. I see. 
Not worth it. <laughs> I feel like it just it, rather than teaching us something new, which I guess is something new, but it like almost takes something off the list. Yeah, keeping us alive could be all of these things. You removed one thing yeah. by torturing that dog. I fully understand what they were looking to achieve. Hook did feel bad. Good about uh, about the whole thing, and and wrote. I shall hardly be induced to make any further trials of this kind because of the torture of the creature. But certainly the inquiry would be very noble if we could find any way to stupefy the creature. Mm. You know, just like, you know, knock it out yeah. and then do it more humanely. Yeah. I mean, he still did the experiment again in 1667, <laughs> three years later. <laughs> he got over that quick. Now, I understand the idea of adding to a body of knowledge mm-hmm. and that the body needs to increase for there to be like human progress, especially medical progress. Totally. But it's just, it's just hard. It's just how we are now as, as human beings, as, as, as you know, most people love animals. It's just so hard to, it's so hard to marry the two ideas, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you saying this as a result of what we've just heard or what you're, or are you preparing us for, for something even worse now? I, I, it's, it's both. Okay. It's both. It's both. Uh, it, again, it's just like, ah, oh, these guys are absolute maniacs. <laughs> but at the same time, if we, we wouldn't have things, yeah. um, we still I, think there's like holy breath in us and all that. Uh, exactly. Like divine, like yeah. Numa, whatever it was called. <laughs> um, Ruton writes that modern history of the science celebrate the discoveries of Wren, Boyle, Harvey and Hook. Like the first intravenous injections, the first blood transfusions, the first anatomy of the brain, the first account of physiology of respiration. But it's worth stressing that this extended program of animal vivisection had no therapeutic benefits Mm. for people who were sick. Um, Not a single life was saved, not a single illness abbreviated. I was going to say, I I don't care how good you are. I don't, it doesn't matter how many bird anuses you look at. (laughs) No one is learning from that. All you're learning is about bird anuses. It's just, again, it's adding to the body of knowledge, but it's not treating anyone. It's not useful. Let's be clear here. Like while Harvey experimented and tried to learn more, he still relied upon in his own practice, worthless therapies of the worthless therapies of Hippocrates and Galen. Mm. So, so he was still bloodletting. He was still, still doing, doing enemas. He was still doing like making people throw up. Like he was still giving people. This guy's the worst of both worlds. He's like, I will tell you what, I'm going to keep all the old stuff that we know is wrong, yeah, and I'm going to do some new stuff that helps no one. Whereas I feel like Vesalius was a bit more. I don't know. He did it. He did it as well. I don't know. <laughs> They're all garbage. <laughs> now we're moving on to the next big surgery superstar. Maybe Doctor Doolittle himself, John Hunter. John Hunter, Doctor Doolittle himself. Which is already, which is quite scary to consider what we've heard so far today. Yeah. <laughs> and his surname is Hunter. Yeah. And his name is, is, he's known as Dr. Lou Little, maybe. Oh dear. Oh dear. Okay. What did he just cut off every animal's ear <laughs> and all of them or something? And he just like lined them, them all up. And he just talks to them and that's how the name came about. Just whispers. <laughs> <laughs> cut off ears. Um, gross. Known as the founder of surgical science, John okay. Hunter was born in 1728. We're, so we're booking through the years. We are. So a hundred years after Harvey's big work was published. I feel like the medical industry has some daddy issues because all of these things are like, all these founders of and fathers of. 
Like, every single one of the people I've mentioned have been, like, a founding father or father or something. Okay, yeah, apart from that I think one. you made the joke in the first episode, how it's like, every time I introduced someone, it was like, and now it's the dad and, of modern medicine and, and, again. Yeah, I kept saying, it's like, and now this is the person who will get it right this time, or whatever. Except that one dude who, him and his wife were childless, and we laughed. We laughed and laughed. <laughs> um, John moved to London in 1748. As they do. 20 years old at the time, to assist his brother, William Hunter. Mm-hmm. William Hunter started at a school of anatomy, teaching the art of dissection, which opened in 1746, so two and a half years before. It started in a Covent Garden apartment and then moved to one great piazza in 1749. Is that the address or is that just a description of the place? No, that's the address. Okay, one great piazza. One great piazza. (laughs) It's not the address anymore, but it's where the Apple store is today. Oh! Yeah, that used to be a a school of dissection. Wow. A school of anatomy. Uh, The school was a great success, and therefore they needed help procuring and preparing corpses for lectures. Naturally. 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 It's the same old story. How can you get more natural than a fresh dead corpse, man? <laughs> so there were ten years between the men, William and John, uh, and they were of ten children. Bloody hell. Yeah. Well, I guess that was common back then. Yeah. Fine. John's father was 65 when he was born, and he, John was the youngest of the ten. Uh, <laughs> where... Sorry, I think he said his dad was born when he was sitting, like, he just came out of the womb at 65 years old. Um, what is it, Benjamin Button? <laughs> where William wore a powdered wig and dined with intellectuals, John dropped out of school at 13 and was a largely uneducated country lad. Okay. So John had a similar background to William Harvey, um, but then William, William Hunter and William Harvey had more in common, like more adult life type, okay. type things. You know, London scene, you know, big ones. Going out, getting bevved. Getting bevved, talking about ghost <laughs> talk, stories. Talk, talking about your ones. Comparing ones. <laughs> uh, so the two were never close mm-hmm. because of like a 10 year age gap. But nevertheless, William needed an assistant in procuring and preparing cadavers for his lectures. Now, it seems silly to say that this doesn't mean John wasn't smart, especially since the intro I, I've given him. Um, while he didn't go to grammar school in Eton or whatever, he roamed the countryside and learned about plants and animals himself. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like procured knowledge on his own. And Schneider writes that John Hunter came to London with insatiable curiosity, um, scepticism and a battle-born durability. His primary task in the 12 years he partnered with his brother was getting his hands on bodies for dissecting. Okay. The only ones going were the bodies of hanged criminals, some of whom might have been hung for only stealing a watch. It reminds me of that scene in like the Sweeney Todd musical film when um, oh, Alan Rickman is like, he's the judge in the film, isn't he? I think so. And he's like telling off someone. It's like, and sir, you will now be hanged. It just pans like a little kid. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like sobbing. But the allotment from the government of like these hanged criminals was very small. God knows where else the bodies went. Ugh. Especially since the Murder Act of 1752 meant that um, hanged criminals weren't allowed burial. So if there was a small oh. allotment to, like, the surgeons, where were the rest Wait, of so hanged criminals weren't allowed burial, so I wonder what they chose to do with them. I know. As in, they purposefully said, screw that, we're not going to put you in the ground where you can't it's like, get we need, diseased. We need bodies to, like, progress, but... Like, they must yeah. have just gone into Thames or Unless something. Unless there was lots of, like... Well, why would you waste the bodies? Like, sell them to the schools. Yeah. Government call back some tax and money. But then I guess maybe there was, like, several schools they were being sent to. I don't know. It's good. It's good questions. Good, good question to leave in the ether there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Where are good, good question for us to never, never come talk. back yeah, to. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, so John Hunter became one of Harv- one of history's uh, great grave robbers. <laughs> okay. In October 1748, 
With William clamouring for more bodies for his pupils, John almost certainly set out himself under cover of darkness from the Covent Garden School, armed with a shovel and crowbar to scour local burial grounds for freshly dug graves. We've really moved on not an inch from the boy Vesalius just doing it in Paris. I think they, or maybe London and like England have more strict rules. Mm-hmm. And most likely he commandeered parties of like students, probably bolstered by several rounds of ale in a tavern <laughs> b- beforehand to help him in his grivelly undercover work. Yeah, going out getting bevved and, and grave robbing. You kids want to earn a few pennies. <laughs> earn a few farthings. <laughs> and he was like really like rough and because like, he was like a country school kid, he was like rough and that's why like, he like did really well with like the kids and stuff. Yeah. Because he wasn't like very well spoken. He was like, like a he, he could relate guy. to the yeah. to the street urchins and get himself easy bodies. And a hundred percent, that and it was like you know they would go out and they would like be at the gallows, being like, "We're in for our school," and he was like, you know, he would like <laughs> tussle in and, and get them. Oh, imagine saying that to the person who's about to be hanged. The person about to be hanged, it's like you're about to be on our dissection <laughs> table. <gasps> you're great. <laughs> <laughs> don't um, don't squirm too much. <laughs> Remarkably, William discovered that his brother was an incredibly skilled anatomist and quickly started, he and, and John started, you know, running classes himself. Wow. Um, Natural born dissector. Yeah. Wow. He then studied under some of the most esteemed surgeons of the day and became assistant surgeon at St. George's Hospital in 1756. So almost like, like what a, what's the word, trajectory, mm. like massively shot up in in the world from low country lad to being an esteemed surgeon it's himself. All about, it's all about that nepotism. All about that nepotism. Let's <laughs> um, take away from his natural born talent to carve up bodies. Um, there's a bit of controversy about whether or not John and William may have killed pregnant women, but there is no evidence to substantiate this claim. That's a hell of a thing to just drop in <laughs> out of nowhere. Good Lord. Um, there's there's like someone a few years ago um, claimed that, yeah, they, they could have murdered women of, because of what they found out. Uh-huh. Um, other medical historians that like, rushed to John and William's aid and like produced evidence that like, you know, there were, there was notes to go with why these women died. Right. But you know, it's very scary. We don't believe in rumors. No, no, no. Um, compulsively scientific. John Hunter never took anything as fact, kind of like the same. Uh, and meticulously tested and experimented. It was a bit bizarre and outlandish. <laughs> and he regarded the sense of taste as an important part in the physician's toolkit. Wait, wait, no. Yeah, no. yes, Danny. Oh, I thought we were past all these kinky douche bags. He wrote after a dissection, the gastric juice is a fluid somewhat transparent and little brackish to the taste. This is the worst thing I've heard all week. Everything you said before about vivisections on alive pregnant dogs and watching their unborn puppies suffocating to death, it all pales in comparison to this absolute grossness. He tasted dead people's internal juices. Oh, please don't ever do this topic ever again. Listen please, to this. Please don't let there be a part Listen three. to this, Danny. Listen, you said you would. <laughs> Listen to this. The semen would appear, both from the smell Excuse me. and taste, Excuse me. to be mawkish, to be a mawkish kind of substance. This is him in his own writing. But when held some time in the mouth, mm. but when held some time in the mouth, it produces a warmth similar to spices, which lasts some time. Just so I got this right, this is him talking about semen. Yes. This guy went out of his way 
to be like, I've taken some dead man's semen mm. and I will now put it in my mouth for a while. He held it in his mouth. Until something happened. Until it, until he, he, he noticed that it produces a warmth similar to spices. <laughs> Your face right now is a picture. I'm so angry. It's just, I just I just love like what it, everything is implied by like these sentences. <sighs> do you think he told some time in the mouth? Do, do you think he told like like what like how how does that come up at, at dinner? Like like so, what did you learn from the body today? It's like oh well, I learned that semen tastes. <laughs> sorry, excuse me. I learned that dead men's semen has a particular spicy taste when it's kept in the mouth for an hour or two. Why would why would you not do your own <laughs> rather than a corpse's? Surely that, surely so that many, meant... There's so many legal loopholes here or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure if he, if he took his own... Is it cannibalism? <laughs> is it cannibalism? Was was any kind of uh, homosexual-related activity back then completely un- unallowed and illegal? Is it a homosexual activity if you do it to yourself because you're alive? But it's okay if it's for science. If it's, if, if it's, it, but it's okay if it's a dead guy for science. For science? For science. This man would do anything for science. This man must have had for science tattooed on his forehead <laughs> because because anyone would have said, what is wrong with you? And he's like, uh, 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 for science. Um, he seen, John Hunter seemed to have no capacity for revulsion at all. And like, he was not put off by the smell of putrefaction or disease. His, and what, his brother just like stood by and was like, okay, yeah, keep tasting the semen. Well, I, this was this is like I think this is by this point this is like his own experimentation. Was, <laughs> he, he moved out at this point. An avid experimenter, um, <laughs> overly enthusiastic. Another great source that I used um, for this episode was Wendy Moore's book, The Knife Man: Blood, Body Snatching, and the Birth of Modern Surgery. Uh, and in that book, Hunter she writes that Hunter brought to bear all his natural scientific curiosity, embarking on the experimental approach that would characterize his whole life. And he and, and he and he used it on on a chimney sweep, who lay in pain and frustration. A young man had contracted gonorrhea that resulted in a blockage in the urethra. Oh. So this was one of Harvey's patients. Okay, and so you know he brings forth all to bear his his experimental nature. He's gonna he's gonna save this young man's penis. He's gonna he's gonna save this man's right to pee. First. Harvey got a cylindrical bung made of wax called a boogie or a bogey. <laughs> B-O-U-G-I-E. Boogie or bogey? What do you want to go that for? Sounds like bougie. Bougie. Could be, I, I reckon, it, I reckon it's, a, it's a boogie. Okay, let's go with boogie. Well, it, it, it was made out of wax. It's a bung. A bung. Yeah. Called a boogie. Called a boogie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to force a way uh, through the blocked reefer channel. So, like, your, it's, your, your channel's blocked because mm-hmm. of gonorrhea. And it's like, so you've got this... Uh, <laughs> And you, you get I've this. Never heard someone <laughs> Your block has a gonorrhea. Because it's gonorrhea. You, you just have a chunk of gonorrhea stuck in you. I imagine it's because it inflamed. I guess. I wouldn't know. And so through the urethra, someone just gets like a thing, just like trying to shove it through. Oh, shove it down to, his. To, to push it through the blockage. That's push the blockage back into you. But if it's in, if, I don't know how gonorrhea works. Thankfully, but if it's inflammation, I there's nothing. But then there's nothing to to dislodge. No. Well, they it's, don't know it's this. It's just inflamed. So just yeah, we know this. Yeah, we know this from all our <laughs> from all our, 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 our experiences. From all, from all our gonorrhea. Yeah. Um, no success. Uh-huh. So shockingly, shockingly. Didn't work. 
Uh, well, you, what you mean? It didn't manage to dislodge the thing that wasn't there. It didn't. It didn't, it didn't cure him of gonorrhea. No. <laughs> um, Harvey conjectured that he might shift the blockage by burning a way through. So, using a caustic salve on the end of the boogie, Hunter first used mercuric oxide, which caused much inflammation and pain. Then attempted, with remarkable forbearance from the chimney sweep, to try silver nitrate. So these are all like acidic, burny things. Isn't it amazing how they don't attempt to fix this with like candy floss or <laughs> or, or something nice? Yeah, yeah. It's like I, I know. Let's go straight Water. to let's go straight to a flaming torch and acid. Yeah. Um, he probed the urethra three times at two day intervals, and the man was able to pee again. Why? Because the gonorrhea just stopped. He burnt his way through. <laughs> his approach, trying a traditional method, which was the boogie, analysing the outcome, forming a hypothesis aimed at improvement, and implementing the results would become standard practice throughout his career. So this is like the, like the scientific methods. Like, okay, the traditional way didn't work. Why not? Let's think about it. Let's try something new. Let's try that. Okay, slight improvement. Let's yeah. try something else. It seemed to work. Let's try something different. And yeah, it helped the chimney sweep pee. I'm surprised he had a penis left by the end of it. Bloody hell. How big was your urethra hole by the end? Oh, Jesus. God, he must have been able to just pee it all out in one push. <laughs> like a tap. <laughs> it's like one big splosh. <laughs> Oof, done. Um, and then in 1760, Hunter was commissioned as an army surgeon during the Seven Years' War between Great Britain and France. Okay. Here, those poor soldiers. Those poor soldiers. Here, Schneider writes, Hunter began a programme investigation on the proper treatment of war wounds. Um, and Hunter began to realise that less was more. Kind of like Pear did, do you remember, in the first episode when um, some were given the... Not a messed up cocktail of nonsense. Of like rose, yeah. well, like rose. And one guy was just like, you get nothing, and he's the one that survived. And he was fine, yeah. yeah. Um, his fellow surgeons were actually inflicting greater pain and hastening death mm. by inserting grimy fingers and filthy tools into yeah. wounds, so doing more harm than good. Um, and a chance development occurred in the first week on the island that cemented Hunter's belief that conservative care was better, so again, less is more. Some French soldiers had survived a gunfight and skedaddled away, and they were discovered four days later hiding in a barn. Hunter tended to the men, realising that the... The French troops who received no care at all because they were hiding for four days with their wounds, they were all faring better than the British forces who received treatment straight away. And you were, yeah, they were unlucky enough <laughs> to get treated. He was a clever man and he had the mind, he had the scientific understanding to perceive like cause and effect. He sounds like a critical thinker. Yeah. It's like these guys didn't receive anything and their wounds are doing much better than our guys because they were left alone. It sounds so obvious now, but yeah, I can imagine back then it was a very special skill. And John was also an avid naturalist um, and keeper of animals. He owned an exotic collection of animals from around the world, including Asian buffalo, a lion, a jackal, a dingo, and two leopards, which he kept at his country home west of London in Earl's Court. Very nice. And this is why some researchers believe that John Hunter was the inspiration behind Dr. Doolittle. Oh, so his... Because of his, like... Uh, I thought say erotic. <laughs> um, I think. I mean, I wouldn't have shocked. Just um, like eclectic collection yeah. of animals. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad it's because of that and not because he did get like freaky with his experiments on them. Well, we're getting well. Oh, we're getting closer to it. Okay. And you, well, I mentioned earlier that John Hunter took nothing as fact. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Uh, he even contested... <laughs> it takes nothing as fact. Why can't I take a cheater as a wife? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> he even contested that the ancients, like most of the characters we've spoken about in the story, like, you know, they contested like the old beliefs. And I love the way that Schneider writes this. Nothing was off limits. Okay. Not even his own body. Oh, okay. So, so, he, so he's apart, putting his money where his mouth is. So, so apart from marrying his animals, <laughs> which didn't happen, what do you think he did? And we're talking, Have a guess. Is this, so is this related to animals and him? It's not related to animals. It's just him. But nothing was off limits. So even his own body, he would he, he, he's like, okay, I can experiment on myself too. So we've already... Bearing in mind, he tastes the gastric juices... Of corpses, but but we we were we already ruled out that he was like tasting his own semen, right? Sure. Okay, so it's not that. It's not specifically that. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so it was some other bodily fluid or bodily part uh, part involved that he experimented on. Yeah, his penis. What do you think he did? What did he do with his penis? <laughs> what do you think he did, Danny? I, he's not. He can't be enough of a madman to just cut it off. No. No. Okay. <laughs> No. So he didn't cut it off. Oh, what did he do? Like dip it in wax and make a giant candle or something? <laughs> no. What did he do? I don't think I laid down and made a giant candle. <laughs> well, 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 he, well, he called it a giant candle. Everyone else was like, that's a pretty medium candle. Look at that tea light over there. <laughs> um... <laughs> it was a cold day. It's like. Or well, at least he wasn't, you know, he was, at least he wasn't, you know, like, um, what's the word when you like, and he wasn't overcompensating he wasn't with a 16 inch wand. No. Um, so he sexually transmitted diseases were running rampant at this time. Oh, naturally. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm shocked any of us are here. Now, Harvey was determined to investigate one aspect of disease transmission. Could the crusty discharge from a syphilitic patient alone be the carrier of the disease from one lover to a lover? Your face is so funny right now. <laughs> I'm so upset you chose this topic. I'm um, so upset. Because it's an audio medium, Danny's lent as far away from me as possible and and is just and just hating life right now. I think it's the face I make normally when I'm in like the fourth hour of a hung of a hangover when I'm just like Ugh. Is it weird that I'm hungry? <laughs> is it weird? Is, uh, no, it, yes, it's very weird because okay. I was hungry. Now I'm not anymore. So so additional to, to finding out about the cross discharge from syphilis patients, whether that's the cause of contagion, mm-hmm. he also wanted to f- determine if gonorrhea and syphilis were actually two separate diseases. Obviously, hindsight, we know that they are. No. Or were they simply different manifestations of the same disease? Harvey was like, sorry, Hunter was like, I will find out. Let's find out. <laughs> and he stripped off immediately and ran into the... So, so, so in his notes, um, Hunter recorded the results, but never identified the patient. Um, most scholars agree that Hunt himself was the guinea pig. And when we say guinea pig here, are we saying that he had like crusty syphilis or, or gonorrhea or both, or he went out and found someone with crusty syphilis or gonorrhea and did the deed? He got, I, I, he got a sample. He got a sample. Okay. Do you want to know what he did with it? I mean, even if I massively tell you, please don't, you're still going to tell yeah. me. Yeah. Because you're 30 for knowledge, Danny. Because I'm 30 for knowledge and so are our audience. So Hunter himself wrote, two punctures were made on the penis with a lancet dipper in the venereal matter. I changed my mind. I from a gonorrhea milky discharge. You with me so far? <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you wanted to get this episode over and done with. One puncture was made on the glands. Mm. You know what the glands is, Danny, oh, don't you? Yeah. yeah? yeah. Do you want to yeah. define that for our listeners, just in case? 
Carolina. I don't remember where it is. <laughs> the glands is the head of the penis. Oh, there we go. The other was on the the prep the prepus the prepus the prepus. Don't ask me. I don't know where the glands is. The foreskin. The foreskin. Lovely. So he made he he made two two like you know he he not injected himself but like no he just broke the skin and, and, and some and, holes in himself and, and dabbed some uh, dabbed some on the tip of his penis and on the foreskin. This was on Friday. Um, <laughs> on the Sunday following, and this is this is him writing. This was on Friday. On the Sunday following, there was a teasing itching in these parts, which lasted to the Tuesday following. That's from the works of John Hunter. Great source. His penis began to scab, <laughs> discharge, and the lips of his urethra puffed out. This is. None of this was worth it. Within 10 days, he realised that he'd given himself syphilis. <laughs> we did it! He didn't die from it, though. Okay. He treated himself by dabbing mercury on his sores for the next three years. That's, that's, that isn't treating it. For science! That isn't treating it. That, that's just prolonging the inevitable. His later cardiac rest when he died, though, could be linked to the syphilis he put on himself. Perhaps. <laughs> How desperate were these times? Like, how how absolutely horrible was the average day for you to be like, this is worth doing? For science! For science. Like, like there are things I'll do during an average day where I'm like, well, you know, because it's kind of expected in part of the norm. Like, how bad was it day to day where someone would give put holes in their penis, <laughs> give themselves syphilis? More holes in their More penis. holes in their penis. He must have peed so strange by the end of it. But, like... And then spend the next three years putting like mercury. Oh, oh. And then put, spend the next three years putting mercury on their dick. Just and then well, I think the sores were like all over his body, right? Because it's like like oh, sorry. like buboes and stuff, and it's just like okay. you, you just like come out in sores. Okay, like, I didn't know this. Again, oh, thankfully, three years that the sores and, get coming. And, and, and I think the body reaches like some sort of equilibrium with it, and it's just like it doesn't. And what? And, and he's going out talking to people, and they're like, "You okay?" And he's like, "No, nah, I'm just dabbing mercury on my sores from a syphilis I gave myself from when I punctured my penis just to find out if this would happen." Last year, yeah, it's not been great. And they're like, "Yes, it's been a long summer." And they're just like, "Okay, cool." Like, how was that? Just part. I wonder if that was just part for the course of that time period because it sounds horrible. I mean, I mean, like, I feel like I have my biggest respect for this guy. I don't know if I have respect. I have. Thoughts. <laughs> well, it's not like Vesalius, who was scared of his stuff happening mm. to his own body. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's apples and pears. But um, what was his older brother was thinking throughout all of this? He's just there, like, better you than me. <laughs> like, 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 they, they, they meet up for a cup of tea sometimes, and, like, John's just, like, all itchy, and Harvey's like, William's like, oh, you're so embarrassing. I, I know. I imagine, it, it, like, William's just there. He's like, well, you're... I'm the smart one. You're the one that can talk to people. Like, I imagine William was, like, the socially awkward one or something, and he just went and the, the, the academic stuff and then the other guy is the one who has the rough and tumble life and this is part of that rough and tumble life oh, either way experimenting on yourself absolutely brutal but again I, I'm like you know fair dues man at least you didn't do it to anyone else and like won't do it to yourself well as far as I know I mean um, <laughs> I, I think I feel you're going to be relieved to hear that we're going to start wrapping up here thank the lord <laughs> So later, later discoveries in the field of pathology and the emerging interest in the use of microscopes, because microscopes have been around, but people just weren't interested in them. Um, and uh, an interest... It's, it's massively powerful tool. Yeah. And it's like, like nah, it's great. I'm just going to keep yeah. poisoning myself with mercury. Yeah. Okay, cool. And an interest in germ theory would then eventually lead to John Lister, 
born in 1827, mm-hmm. um, pioneering the first antiseptic surgery on August 12th, 1865. Lister has got a good story as well, um, so worth looking up if you're interested, but he performed surgery on a little boy's leg, which would have otherwise just been an amputation. Wow. Um, it was a compound fracture. And um, by coating the boy's wounds in carbolic acid post-surgery, so he, like soaked it in a rag and then wrapped the wounds in, in this rag of like antiseptic stuff, the body was able to heal without incident or infection. And he could see like the bones like, um, you know, coming back together and fusing back together. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's considered the first successful surgery the first like successful treatment surgery like we could set bones and stuff but like you know there was no complications yeah. this was like the beginning of modern surgery Proper modern, modern where we can really like change people's lives and and, and, and like you know not make it worse not make it worse <laughs> <laughs> not make it significantly worse Whew, what a journey that was absolutely awful uh, i've got so much knowledge now and all I can think is I never, ever, ever want to be ill or injured for my remaining years. So so back to my original question. You've heard all the ghoulish things that, that, that happened and, and the horrible, horrible experiments mm-hmm. that occurred, again, for our body of medical knowledge and yeah. where we are now. You know, pioneers or madmen? I have a... Okay, what was the name of the, of the guy again, sorry, that uh, did the first successful antiseptic? Uh, John Lister. John Lister. 1827 he was born in, and the experiment happened, uh, the, the operation happened 1865. So I, I guess my, I think this is all entirely dependent on how much his work was based on the learnings of the previous work of the guys mm. before him. Because this it sounds like a big jump yeah. from putting mercury on your penis to <laughs> carrying out the first so successful... Putting, putting gonorrhea discharge. So, putting, sorry, syphilitic discharge on your penis. Sorry. Going from that to... I have successfully created an antiseptic and I can heal people. <laughs> like, because, because if his Our hands do so many like be, motions yeah, right now, it's because, like, oh, it's up in the air. Because if Lister was able to do this, but based on some independent research or, or some other body of work, then that just means all the stuff the other guys were doing was just clown college and some guys messing around <laughs> with like animals and stuff and infecting themselves with STDs. And he's just over there on, and then this is on the other side, just being like, I'm going to learn <laughs> and I'm going to treat this little boy. Whereas like, he's just, we've just started in, in his time. Like we started learning about germs and that there's, yeah. there's stuff in the air that might cause infection and yeah. stuff. So he yeah. was basing it on that knowledge, but then he wouldn't, we know so I'm much. I'm sure that there's things that, yeah, like, like the things you mentioned. In, in, in medicine, like, you know, like your, your girlfriend, she's like, you know, choosing what path she wants to go down. And like, there's so many streams yeah, in yeah, the yeah. world of medicine, you know, like they cross over and. Yeah, it would be facetious. So separate. It would be facetious of me to say, like, yeah, it all came from this one pile of knowledge when obviously a lot of this was coming from a lot of different people. And, and despite the, the, the faces of horror I've been presented <laughs> throughout this entire episode, it's like, it is clear that, you know, they learned some fundamental yeah. things these fundamental things that people in the future, including Lister, wouldn't have known about if they'd never done like it. Like the heart pumping blood around your yeah. body in one system is is so important for understanding how, like, poisons work mm. because it doesn't just affect, like, your digestive system. It affects your whole body exactly. of, of the blood and, like, the food absorbed yeah. into the blood, etc. I can see... I, I totally concede that and that was worth it. I don't think they're off the hook at all, yeah. <laughs> these guys who... 
I'm pretty sure they must have had, if I'm to say it as straight face as possible, I'm sure it must have been, I'm not going to say it was a kink, but it must have been some kind of weird power fantasy or something for at least some of these guys mm. where they're like, I have control of the body and I am learning the things and people will learn more of the things because of what I do. Yeah. I'm sure it's a power trip or an ego trip or something like that because there is no reason for them to have done all these things in the way that they did it. And also, again, going back to uh, William Harvey, you know, Galen had already done the experiments and like the knowledge was wrong. And then, you know, not uh, William Harvey just like did it again to see if like, yeah. to, like, to see it for his own eyes yeah. the autopsy see it with his own eyes and then you know that led to his own experiments going forward so yeah I mean it uh, it's it's horrible for us in the, in the present day to say you know not to say but like you know our understanding of animals and, and our feelings towards animals are very different mm-hmm. um then they were, the attitudes were completely different. You know, they were yeah. seen as... Yeah, you have us. to take it with cultural context and... I mean, all not very Christian of them still. No, 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 nothing remotely. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, I understand. But uh, So, Dane, are you still 30 for knowledge? I'm so 30 for knowledge. Not, I'm very not hungry, I can tell you that much, but I'm very 30 for knowledge. Are you, are you feeling better now having that... I all mean, out I, of your head and you're going to throw your laptop uh, in the ocean? I'm glad that, I'm glad that that's done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not and, sure. I, and I and I and I'm glad that I'm glad that yeah, like it was it was it was it was the medical staff. I'm gonna start this again. I'm glad that it's done. <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, yeah, it was. It's a lot of high, high intellectual. I'm saying this so badly. I'm gonna start again. Cut this bit. <laughs> I'm not. I'm glad that it's done. You're glad it's done. And. Wow, am I physically exhausted? <laughs> I think you're physically and mentally exhausted, um, and I'm not shocked. I, I've, I've been. It, this has been. This has been in the books for a long time. Yeah, and and part two is finally over, and I'm glad we split it over two mm. because there was a lot of there was lot a lot of, there. there was a lot of knowledge in that. There, there, there was there was so much knowledge overflowing. With knowledge. If you have any particular strong feelings <laughs> <laughs> or want to wade into the argument, you know, genius or ghoul. Mm. For science or cruelty, mm. send us an email at 34knowledge at outlook.com. Or just send us a message at uh, 30 for knowledge on Instagram and uh, tell us why we're monsters for laughing at all the things we shouldn't <laughs> have been laughing at. And if you laugh too, tell us what part you found hilarious. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening to this grisly episode of 30 for knowledge. Thank you so much, George, for presenting us for this episode. And thank you for doing all the research and compiling all those horrible, horrible, horrible oh, things. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a hard cross to bear, my friend. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not shocked. Now let's go experiment with our penises. No, I don't think I will. All I right, think let's, uh, let's, uh, go, let's go to the shop and drown our sorrows instead. Yeah, yeah, we can do that instead. Uh, I've been Danny. I've been George. And thank you very much for listening. We'll Take s- care. We'll see you next time. Bye. Be safe out there. Don't break any bones. You really or don't want to break any bones. Get you. Yeah, they'll find you.